Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner 3 days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 432. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. A glory. A man, from last time, it is a glorious day today. I will be out with the dogs after work, unfortunately. Yeah, work. So I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have an interview with Je Oui, who has done some remarkable things with a robotic hand. Just remarkable. The future is here. It certainly is. We've got an interview with you coming up. Then the main fiction is Citizen of the Galaxy by Evan Dicken, which was originally published in Analog December 2014. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around. So there's a big announcement before all of the science fiction. There's a big announcement from little old me. In the background over the last month or so, I've been working on a new podcast. Yes, kind of keep the kind of keep the fella down. I'll tell you where it comes. Well, it is called Your Remarkable Adventure. And it's basically just an interview podcast where I interview people who've been on a remarkable adventure, who've done a journey, who's cross the desert, cycle the world, anything like that. You know, the, I'm a little bit, well, well, I am, I'm kind of, and I mentioned on the show as well, the first show is out, just if you wanted to know, the first show is out there, Your Remarkable Adventure. But I'm a, a, a total armchair adventurer, do you know what I mean? That's the, that's, I'm quite safe, quite happy, sitting in the armchair, watching them on telly. And I, don't get us wrong, I did the, you know, the Roman Wall. We walked the Roman Wall, my son and myself, last year. But certainly nothing, you know, I'm, I am a bit of a home bird when it comes to, like, the, the big adventures, you know. But I watched a programme on the telly called, Your, I think it's called Extreme Mountain Challenge. Over here in the UK, we've got a, like a UK adventurer called Steve Bakshel. And he used to be like a children's program TV presenter, but you know, like an adventure one, you know, picking up snakes and a little bit like Steve Irwin, do you know, from Australia, a little bit like that. <clears throat> well, he a couple of weeks ago, no, about probably about two months ago, there now, it was on the television. It was a two-part program called Extreme Man- Mountain Challenge, where they went to Venezuela, those Tapui Mountains, you know, the ones that are kind of straight up, they just look like from Jurassic World, you know, those kind of eerie-looking mountains. And the idea was to go, to walk to one of them, to climb up it, 
it would take them five days to climb up it. You know, they would sleep on the ledge and then they would go on the top and look for strange new exotic animals and everything. And then they would scoot in inside and go like cave holing. And, well, it was just, I love, you know what I mean? That, anyways, is what I love. Do you know what I mean? I, love, I could just sit and watch that anyways. But this program was a little bit different than the kind of the David Attenboroughs. It was basically, you know, handheld cameras. I had cameramen that had a full kind of expedition team, but it was more, like I say, a real life. You know, it wasn't really, you know, things weren't cut out. And it was, man, it showed a different side of it. You know what I mean? It was kind of dangerous, you know? Like, they were getting up this cliff, this side of this cliff, and, yeah, from a distance it didn't look big, but trust us, it took them five days. Well, that's what they give themselves, five days to get up. And I think after three, they were still nowhere near. Do you know what I mean? They were sleeping on ledges, like a two-foot wide, sleeping on them on the night time, full of scorpions and biting spiders and everything. And then the rains would come, the storms would come, and they were blowing their bits. And it was just like, wow, man. There was like, at one point, Steve Baxter took the camera to the cameraman, you know, and the cameraman had been up Everest. He'd been everywhere. He's been doing this game for like how many years? There was tears in his eyes. He was shaking. Do you know what I mean? There was like a storm going on. They were on. They had no support. They were just kind of on this like terrible little ledge. And, you know, this lad was crying. Do you know what I mean? He was wiping tears, you know, fearing for his life. And... There was another bit where the two kind of... Because Steve Baxter said he's not a climber. He just kind of... He'll follow up. But there's two, like, main climbers. Well, rocks fell down. One hit one in the mouth. There was blood everywhere. And they just give it up. You know, they couldn't attempt this. And I was like, wow, man, that's like... I was on the edge of my seat. And then they actually, you know, they, they had to come down because it was just far too dangerous. And you've seen all the kind of... The misery and the unhappiness of, like, failing. Do you know what I mean? Then a kind of helicopter came and took them onto the top of a... Tapui Mountain, and then they went pothole, and, and then they were just going, and that mind, God, fear for me. They were just scrabbling through, like, underground, you know, these caves, and it was just, and they were the talking where they were getting led by an Italian explorer who hoped, when they were going down these things, that this trail that they were following underground would meet up with, because they were going off on this totally different new, brand new trail underground and the italian explorer was hoping it would meet up with where he thought it was if not you know that they really couldn't they couldn't go back you know it was that tight oh man and the whole two programs was fascinating i thought you know what it would be lovely to interview those type of people and when i interviewed if you remember a few weeks ago i, I interviewed jill Hynerth, who was you know a cave explorer explore that with the with deep like diving you know and it was talking to Jill and that I thought you know what I mean I'm missing out on so much because just for me to enjoy it you know like, enjoy a conversation ask like the kind of the childlike questions you know what I mean what's it like you know what I mean the wonder and it's from those two seeds where I thought do you know what and then I realized you know because I thought I'm gonna follow Steve Baxel on on Twitter, do you know, I don't follow many people because I use it for, you know, kind of the show, you know, research of the show. And then I realised, you know, people who are following Steve Bachel were like explorers themselves, just but just everyday people. And it's just like, wow, man, I've honestly had no idea. Do you know what I mean? I knew, I knew obviously, there was like explorers, but I always thought there was like, there'd be a camera team latched them and everything. But there's people out there just doing remarkable things i'm interviewing a gentleman tomorrow who in a, a bet one night in a pub decided you know he's going to cycle around the six continents of the world six years later he's just getting back in february Do you know what I mean? i'm interviewing hopefully it's going to come off a gentleman called charlie head who apparently is going to paddleboard across the atlantic do you know what I mean? I've interviewed the first show today is Laura Bingham, who's cycling from Ecuador all the way down to Buenos Aires, Argentina, capital of Argentina, right down to South America. It's just like with, <laughs> I get excited here, on a bike by yourself with no money. Do you know what I mean? And it's just like the people out there. I've interviewed, and that little bell there that you just heard on my phone, that's a gentleman who's just getting to it. I hope he's sending some pictures. It's called Russell Smith. Now, Russell... 
Russell's scooted from Land's End to John O'Groats on a fucking scooter. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, you're kidding us, man. Do you know what I mean? These people just get up and do these wacky things. I've interviewed a, a gentleman called Sam Furman, who one day stood up and hitchhiked from Norfolk in the UK to China. <laughs> you know what I mean? The furthest I get is walking the dogs along the cliff, and that's a mile and a half, and I get dizzy after that. Do you know what I mean? So that's the kind of whole ethos of doing that show. So I hope you will join us. Like the first, see, the first one is out there now, Laura Bingham, who's cycling. Do you know? And I don't know if anyone kind of knows Laura Bingham. Laura is, and I don't know if anyone knows Ed Stafford. Ed Stafford's a TV presenter over here in the UK. Laura, Ed and Laura are a partnership there, and hopefully they're going to get married, which I found out on the interview as well. So have a have a listen. You know, pop up. I'll put a link in this kind of show post there. You can find it anywhere. You know, what I mean? just yourremarkableadventure.com. You can go there as well. Like you see, I've got a few. I'm speaking to a, a gentleman. I have spoken to a gentleman there. Should have put my phone on silent. Who's what a UK an England Olympic hopeful as well and climbed you know the the Apple Mac El Capitan picture on an Apple Mac climbed that solo and he's blind do you know what I mean it's just like there's people out there man wow so hopefully you will have a little listen to that so first up is an interview I did with Joey who, like I say, has invented this kind of robotic hand, which, and there's a, there's a picture of it, I put a picture of it on the actual website as well, on this post, so you can have a look. And what they're hoping to do as well, is actually graft skin on it, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just Have a listen to the interview, it's just fascinating what technology is doing now. Let's talk about your robotic hand, because... I'm hearing you've achieved kind of these like high levels of accuracy with this hand. You know, people are saying it's got the same dexterity as a human hand. Is that right? I would say it's very close uh, because the approach we use is very unique. And that's because that's kind of the uh, result from using uh, a 3D printed artificial bones from the laser scanned model of a cadaver skeleton hand. So I would say we preserved uh, several important biomechanical uh, features of the human hand. So that actually is the key of making this uh, biomimetic hand very human-like. Because I'm, I'm right in thinking as well, it's going to improve you know, motion capabilities in prosthetics, prosthetics hands you know, that we haven't really seen yet. Uh, yes, I would say so. So basically, um, I can extend uh, the explanation here a little bit uh, more uh, because kind of the motion of the hand is really um, decided by uh, each of our digits. So, and for example, like the motion of our opposable thumb, which is very important, but it's heavily relying on the complicated shape of a bone called a trapezium bone located at uh, the metacarpal, uh, carpal metacarpal joint. So this, the irregular shape of this bone actually decides how that joint uh, can rotate. And also, uh, uh, we also pointed, pointed this out in uh, the paper, uh, saying that the exact location of those joints actually are not fixed. So in, in that sense, none of the existing anthropomorphic robotic hands can really restore this natural thumb motions with conventional mechanical joints. So in that sense, we do believe it actually uh, improved a lot towards uh, the, human, the human level dexterity. I think you've, you've answered this already. How, how is it made? Did you say it's, you've, you've like 3D printed this hand? Yes, yes, we did. Wow. We 3D printed this hand from a um, laser scanned cadaver hand skeleton. So you can you can you can imagine that all of those detailed features of our human bones can be very well captured. That's a, you know what I mean. Just even like say a few years ago, that that just wasn't you know possible. But now with the way technology is going, that's just you know mind blowing, really. 
Yeah, the technologies at once actually really um, helped us uh, quite a lot. But actually, I would say uh, 3D printing and 3D scanning, uh, those technologies, they really kind of, people see them as the emerging technology, but actually uh, they exist there for um, a while already. Uh, it's really just how we should really combine them together and also um, use the paradigm shift the design to really use them for uh, a specific concept. I think that actually to us is the most exciting part. You know, I'm calling it like a robotic hand. So is it powered? It is. <laughs> uh, so, so it is powered actually the fingers. It's just uh, like how our human finger is getting act, uh, actuated. So we are, um, we are having muscles and we're, the muscles are pulling our finger back and forth so that we can straighten our finger or bend our finger. So in the case of our biomimetic robotic hand, we actually replace the muscle with electrical motors. And so this time we actually use a, a commercial product. It's, uh, it's, it's a very good servo. It's called a Dynamixel. So is all this kind of powered in, in the hand or is the kind of wires tracing back like a couple of feet to kind of see the, the motor's side of it? That actually is uh, the location of those uh, motors are located inside the forearm, just like uh, where our muscles are located. Right. So those really big, strong muscles, actually they are located in, inside our forearm instead of inside our palm. So although our hand uh, feels really uh, flushy, but actually all the big, strong muscles, they are kind of located away from the hand so that our hand can be slim and also dexterous. Otherwise, the hand probably will look like uh, very bulky. And I've read as well, is it's going to be maybe possible to use, astronauts are going to use it as well, maybe in the future. I, I wonder if you could just explain how this could come into being. Sure. So, uh, so in, at this stage, we use the scan, the cadaver skeleton hand, right? So, but with our current technology, we can definitely scan the skeleton of uh, the human hand from uh, uh, from uh, a, a live person, right? It's, it's, it's very straightforward. We can use either MIR, uh, MRI or uh, CT scanning. So once we get, once we collect those biomechanical information and then we can digitalize them and then um, after that we can 3D print them and the rest of the part will just uh, follow um our design concept so that if we can scan the astronaut's hand and then uh, create a pair of new robotic hands that look exactly like the astronaut's hand, that will be a big help. I'm not sure whether you saw the movie Gravity. Yes. Uh, right? So at the very beginning, you see uh, those astronauts actually were performing very dangerous uh, spacewalk tasks. So generally, those tasks uh, require astronauts to go out of the space shape and tether them onto uh, the space shape while performing some really dexterous tasks. And uh, we often we often thought about the space as a like empty place where no other uh, kind of external disturbances could exist. But actually, there are lots of debris and which can just accidentally hit either the space shape, uh, space space sheep or the astronaut so it's quite dangerous so if we can scan an astronaut's hand and then put the hand outside the space shuttle and that the astronaut could control his or her own pair of hands inside <laughs> the space shuttle in a very safe environment that actually could be a win-win situation oh man that would just like it would just open up so many you know tasks that are, are far too dangerous do you know what i mean it would just be, be you know outstanding if, if that could happen yeah that that actually is very exciting we're, we're actually kind of very excited in pushing this toward that direction 
But as well. What what I'm going to ask you now, though, this is what got me excited as well, Joe, is that it's your intention actually to grow human tendons and skin on it as well, human skin. Wow, man, that's it's. This is the future now. You know how how are you going to achieve that? I would say this is going to rely on definitely a joint efforts from uh, different research areas. Uh, we clearly pointed this out um, in our research paper. So um, this actually, there there is a field called um, regenerative regenerative medicine, and uh, people probably uh, have heard of a term called tissue engineering. Generally, it involves using patients' own tissue cells to grow something out of nothing, um, kind of out of very little amount of cells. So it actually is definitely an emerging field. And the exciting part is many of those uh, experiments uh, actually has already been validated inside uh, the biology lab. And some of them were even successfully successfully used in clinical practice. So this actually is no longer a sci-fi fiction uh, anymore. So imagine if we can print the hand with biocompatible materials, all the bones, muscles, ligaments, and skin, they can all be successfully grown in the lab and then put together by a hand surgeon so that our robotic hand will be eventually converted to something that is a living, it's more like a living organism. And also this robotic hand will will, uh, be able to, can be grafted onto uh, the patient's uh, left arm. So, that's going to be very, very interesting. I mean, that would just, you know, for people's kind of quality of life to to, to get, you know, like a, a human-looking hand and, like you said, the kind of the robotic side of it, the kind of the dexterity of it, do you know what I mean, to kind of overcome all them hurdles and then for someone to get that a living skin hand, that's just, sure, that's just remarkable. Do you know what I mean? It's just quite exciting. Yeah, I'm actually excited as well. What then was some of your kind of hurdles to try and get this robotic hand to where you've got it now? Was there any kind of big hurdles that were just kind of pretty hard to to get, you know, like to achieve? Um, I would say, um, so if we really want a specific example, I can say designing the artificial joint. And uh, that actually uh, was quite hard because conventionally, Whenever uh, the roboticists need to use a joint, we would think of using a hinge joint, a mechanical one, uh, a gimbal joint. So, uh, but unfortunately, we also, uh, when we following this path, we found that it's very hard to restore the natural, for example, the thumb motion, uh, like I mentioned before. Uh, it's simply, uh, it simply uh, wouldn't happen because of this fixed uh, joint issue uh, coming from this inherently uh, attached with a conventional joint. So uh, then uh, after we kind of look uh, carefully into the important uh, biomechanical information of the hand, we found out those, I would call them, uh, I would call them uh, embodied uh, physical intelligence actually uh, have been there. We just didn't really realize how important they are as um, roboticists. So I would say that actually was the hardest part to kind of transform our thought from conventional mechanical design to something that is totally different but has been there for a very, very long time. Millions of years of evolution. And and have you achieved, you know, like say 100% compatibility there? Have you? Uh, I would say, so this actually really decided by the resolution of the uh, the laser scanning and also the 3D printing. Uh, but fortunately, those technologies right now, they are really good. So um, if you say that's the bottleneck, then I would say uh, actually, actually that's very small. The difference actually is very small. What about, what about, other limbs then is it the same for a foot you know what i mean basically the same you, you, you i know this sounds a bit flippant but you kind of you print it off 
you're attached your mechanical stuff. Is it would it be the, would it be the same for a, a foot or a, or an arm or something? That's an excellent question. That's <laughs> definitely what we want to look into in the future. Because um, if you look into our limbs, they are actually the the the, uh, the biomechanical mechanism itself actually is quite similar. The bones are connected by ligaments. It's the joint capsule, and then um, the limbs are actually uh, later actuated by the muscles, uh, being pulled back and forth by the muscles. So of course. Those are definitely the interesting directions, and we don't even have to be limited within uh, the human body. We can actually kind of expand the same idea um, to other type of the mammals. Uh, many people right now are starting uh, are studying uh, how other how other uh, animals can uh, either jump, run. Uh, so those are very interesting field, but uh, we actually. Uh, we actually didn't really use uh, this very highly biomimetic approach to kind of redesign those robots yet. So one last question then, Zhu. Have you, has there been much excitement when you kind of, you, you released your paper and you, you announced to everyone, everything to the world? Has there been much kind of publicity for you? Uh, yes, actually we, we got quite a lot of attention and uh, um, that's definitely a good thing. So that means actually uh, more people uh, could be able to see the hand, and also I hope our design could uh, could be inspiring, and it could spark something, and that's uh, that's going going to be uh, really good. I mean, for um, I remember when I was a uh, um, little kid, like I saw a robotic hand moving uh, on TV. I got really excited, and um, I. That could be the reason why I'm so interested in robotics. So if it could be, if our robotic hand could serve the same purpose, I think that will be really meaningful as well. Well, honestly, please don't stop. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the world's counting on you there, sir. You know, you. what can I say? A big thank you for coming on and just kind of giving a little kind of insight into kind of what you're working on and the pot, that's what gets me excited, man. The possibilities, you know what I mean? From where we are now to say, you know, five years ago, you know, 10 years ago, what you're doing now, do you know what I mean? And that chance to like graft on human skin and help so many people, do you know what I mean? Like say war veterans, amputees, it's just remarkable. Yeah, thank you. Um, actually, I, I would like to see that uh, to happen as soon as possible as well. But I do want to say that uh, this is our design, or what we demonstrated. Uh, it's a proof of concept design. It's a prototype. We definitely want to improve our design uh, towards many other uh, possible directions. Like I mentioned, uh, it can be used for um, uh, uh, amputee patients, and also it can be used for uh, healthy uh, astronauts. So. Uh, it, there are many possibilities, but also at the same time, as many uh, other research projects, it takes time. So we sometimes have to be patient as well. But um, if we just keep the momentum and push this forward, I think uh, many good things can happen in a well, short period of time. Yes, no, well, honestly, yes, please keep keep doing that. That that would be fantastic. Je, thank you so much for coming on Starship Sova. Thank you. Thank you for having me. There you go. Big thank you to Joe Wee. Like I say, just remarkable. Do you know what I mean? I put a link on there as well. You can pop over to Wee's website. Joe, thank you so much. So next up is the main fiction. And like I say, it is Citizen of the Galaxy by Evan Dickin. Originally, like I mentioned, published in Analog in December 2014. By dear Evan, Dickin studies old Japanese maps and analyzes medical research data at the Ohio State University. By night, he does neither of these things. His work has more recently appeared in Escape Pod, Pseudopod, and Overcast, and his stories forthcoming. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On publishers such as Unlikely Story and Cast of Wonders. And like I say, there's a, there's a link on there as well to evandicken.com. Now, this story is narrated by Andrea Subsati. Now, <laughs> Andrea, I probably butchered that already. But Andrea Subsati is a sociologist, journalist, and podcaster. In 2010, her master's thesis on social impact of zombie cinema was published under the title When There's No More Room in Hell, The Sociology of Living the Living Dead. She joined the staff of the Room Org magazine in 2014, to which she is a frequent contributor. Her writing has also been published in The Undead and The Theology, 2012, and the Canadian horror film Terror of the Soul, 2015. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Citizen of the Galaxy by Evan Dicken. Citizen of the Galaxy by Evan Dicken. The aliens were early. I swept the remains of my breakfast into the recycler and opened the door to find a gaggle of Uyunyi outside the apartment. They blinked at me, heads bobbing as my translator prism converted the binary flicker of their eyes into stilted Japanese. We have flown many kilometers since nightfall. Is this Minato Ward, Takanawa District, 153? I bowed to hide my grimace. Of all the species in the sapient milieu, the Uyunyi were my least favorite boarders. They were rude, and the oil from their feathers made the plycrete crack and flake. I'd have to flush the whole apartment after they left. We have purchased the use of your nest, Miss Mizuguchi. Miss Mizuguchi. Sorry, we'll be out in just a minute. The Uyuni winked amongst themselves, their webbed feet making sucking noises on the concrete as they shifted back and forth. Their heads swiveled toward me. We have decided to grant your request for time. I shut the door before I said something I'd regret. Renting my apartment during the day to migratory aliens was the only way I could afford Tokyo on a teacher's salary. I shouted for Mai. When she didn't answer, I went to her door and called again. Another few beats of silence and I slid the screen aside. Mine knelt in the middle of her room, naked, the tiny LEDs embedded in her skin painting her body in sunset hues. Her hair was pulled back and plasticized, a line of faux gill slits picked out in mascara just below the shadow of her jaw. The only human thing about my daughter was the glare she gave me as I stalked into the room. Please put on some clothes. Mai's fiber optics stippled her cheeks with flecks of yellow and green peak. I darkened my prism before it could translate and waited. Mom. The word was little more than a croak. How long had it been since she'd last spoken? There are Uyuni outside. I don't have time to argue. You're going to be late, Mai. Nobody calls me that anymore. An alien name played across her forehead, the fractal interplay meaningless in any human tongue. It was as if there was a silken cord around my chest, tightening with every breath. She didn't even seem to care how hard I worked, how much I sacrificed. I crossed my arms. You're not going to class without clothes. Mai slipped on a loose robe, her expression flat as a frozen pond. I watched her, wishing she'd shout at me, throw a fit, even break down in tears. Something, anything. There was a sharp rap on the window. 
and a Yunyi peered into the apartment, blinked, then gave the glass another impatient tap with its long curved beak. I waved the shadow opaque, flickered on the noise dampeners, and turned back to Mai. I'm sick of this. Maybe if you spent more time with your own species. Her lips curled like she'd just bitten into a rotten fruit. The door sensor chimed and I squeezed my eyes shut. I could almost picture the Uyunyi outside pecking at the console. We'll talk about this later. There's nothing to talk about. She brushed past me and opened the door, fiber optics flashing a rainbow of apologies to the Uyunyi as she pushed by them. I just want what's best for you. I wanted to go after her but was pressed backward by the flood of squat aliens. By the time I made it back to the door, she was gone. Let me clear the apartment. I keyed in the commands and watched the plycrete swallow my possessions. The furniture and fixtures dissolved in a flicker of hard light, nanowire frames melting back into the projection plates. When I turned, the Uyuni were all staring at me. Your nest is too small. The dimensions were in the listing. If you had a problem with the size, you misunderstand. It is more than sufficient for our needs. We are referring to your hatchling. She should be given room to fly. I don't come to your nest and tell you how to raise your brood. Why would you? We are already very competent in that regard. You are the one in need of instruction. I glared at them. I want you gone before I get home from work. That set off another flickering exchange among the aliens. I left before they could reach a consensus, thankful that the milieu had yet to mandate doors that couldn't slam. So why didn't MacArthur push to have Emperor Hirohito put on trial for war crimes? I searched for whitecaps of interest among the sea of glazed eyes. Finding none, I followed an old teacher's cliché and picked the student who was paying the least attention. Curtis Hong swiped a hand across his desk display, dismissing the chat prism that had been painting the air above its matte-black surface. There were a few furtive snickers from the rest of the class, but I pretended to ignore that he'd been kaleidologuing instead of digesting today's history download. Curtis looked up, LEDs flashing an inquisitive blue. In Japanese, please, Mr. Hong. Could you repeat the question? I did. He fidgeted at his desk. I let silence fill the classroom, hot and uncomfortable as a Tokyo summer. They didn't seem to care at all. Warmth crept up my neck as the argument with Mai resurfaced. What use are the facts if you don't understand them? I took a breath and started again. To derive meaning from knowledge, from anything, we need to engage it. How Japan and America reacted to the post-war occupation can provide insight into the negotiation processes different cultures used to come into terms with... The bell rang. My words were lost in the rustle of hollow slates and feet scuffling on the tile floor. We'll finish on Monday. They filed out in a jostling rainbow, silent but for the high insect whine of spinning chat prisms and the occasional snort of laughter. I slumped back into my chair, vanishing the treadboard with a flick of my wrist. A burst of color on my monitor announced someone at the door. Classes were over for the day, and I didn't have any meetings scheduled. Maybe it was my... My stomach clenched in anticipation of another round of fighting. Come in. Administrator Tan Checkered Ochrefield whispered into the classroom on thousands of tiny tube feet. The fostern stood a meter tall and was roughly twice as wide, the textured lump of its central body supported by five radial arms. It had no ears, nose, or recognizable face, but... Eye spots studded its dorsal surface, scattered like pebbles among the twists and curves of its hyperbolic geometry. The chromatospores on Administrator Field's body shifted in whirls of casual greeting. I nodded back and retrieved my translator prism from the desk drawer. It was a bit old-fashioned, but like many who'd grown up pre-contact, I'd never quite gotten the hang of Fostern, even if it was the milieu's lingua franca, the idea of having miles of fiber-optic cable running through my body always made my skin crawl. The prism hummed. Educator Mizoguchi, have you time for dialogue? Yes, of course. May I lay? Field's tube feet caressed the edge of a nearby desk. At my nod, it crawled onto the top, legs curling over the sides like a starfish prying open a stubborn clam. There was a hiss as the environmental rig field wore surrounded the fostern with a fine mist of vapor. A smell like wet autumn leaves filled the air. 
The Milieu Council on Education has decided the global history requirement is to be removed from the curricula of all member species. I blinked. Why? We have determined that species history contributes to a parochial mindset. This runs counter to the sapient Milieu's goal of fostering understanding among its members. These history requirements are to be replaced with new, broadly designed classes meant to educate future citizens about the Milieu as a whole. Wait, we can't study our own past? Quite the contrary, human history will be included as a facet of milieu studies. Field regarded me with a raised limb. You are shading red. This is unbelievable. I, as a member of the council, I support the decision. The milieu is comprised of 42 member species. Are you implying that human history and culture is somehow more important than theirs? To humans, yes. Bands of red and yellow indignation striated the Fosterns' reply. Your thinking is provincial. Human children will be better served by learning about those with whom they are to share the galaxy than by ignoring all but their tiny corner of it. Field crawled down from the desk, pausing just before the door. Coarse syllabi and relevant knowledge downloads have been delivered into your personal uplink. I suggest you take this as an opportunity to broaden your horizons, Educator Mizaguchi. My hands were cold against my forehead. If I resigned, they'd just find someone else. It wasn't like high school teachers were in short supply. First my, now this. Thankfully, the Uyuni were gone when I got home. The apartment was a blank cave of gray plycrete studded with flickering projector plates. I pinged my while the rooms loaded my specifications, stepping onto the balcony to escape the smell of boiling plastic. My prism flashed green to show that the ping had been acknowledged, then went dark. She was still giving me the silent treatment. I slipped the crystal back in my pocket. The night was humid, but not uncomfortably so, the breeze carrying a hint of salt, although the ocean was kilometers away. Gone was the heady mix of oil, exhaust, and hot asphalt I remembered from my youth, banished by migratory flocks of free-floating scrubbers. I shook my head. Had I just waxed nostalgic about air pollution? The apartment finished its reconfiguration. Fresh fish and vegetables filled the stasis cube. With space at a premium, most apartments nowadays didn't even load kitchens, but I'd made a point of cooking dinner with Mai every Friday since she was old enough to handle chopsticks. Although it would have been easier just to order something from the food library, I wasn't quite ready to give up this one last domestic trapping, even if it was mostly symbolic. I went through the motions of making dinner, Mai's absence like a missing tooth. Smells of hot oil, ginger, and shoyu conjured images of cooking with my own mother back in Kunamoto, the two of us hunched over the house's tiny gas range. I'd only gone back home once since Mom died, stopping en route to a conference in Nagasaki. The house had been replaced by a row of pachinko parlors, but I could still see the bones of the old neighborhood, the bump in Matsukoshi Dori now paved, where I used to jump my bike, the faint smell of cherry trees along the banks of the canal, Mount Kinbo to the east, its ragged shadow pressing across the valley as if to scrape the whole city into the bay. I wondered how Maya would remember our home. I couldn't imagine her coming back to the tenement towers and tearing up at the sight of the featureless box where she and I once lived. Would she save the configuration in her personal files? Maybe map it onto her current apartment when she felt sentimental? I set two places. The click of chopsticks and the soft chum of transport tubes outside only magnified the stillness. When my prism blushed a chatty red, I embarrassed myself by how quickly I snatched it up. No word from my, only a message telling me that the new course syllabi had finished unpacking. I poured myself a glass of wine and flicked through the downloads. Most of the classes concerned the milieu's rise to galactic primacy, dripping with rose-colored descriptions of foster and diplomats. Pre-contact Earth history was summarized by the rise and fall of a series of increasingly large military empires, punctuated by wars of ever-wider scope and devastation. It is a sad fact that humanity would have most likely destroyed itself long before achieving total global equality and proper utilization of planetary resources. Fortunately, the Voyager 1 probe breached their home system magnetosphere on RG-808.3, allowing for the milieu to intercede, and... I slapped the scrolling words away, my mouth sour. 
I paced around the apartment, started and stopped a few tritios, but couldn't seem to relax. I pinged Maya again. No response. And again. Nothing. Agitation bled into anger. If she wanted to go, I'd make it easy for her. I blanked Maya's room, planning to box up her things and set them in the kitchen to scare some sense into her. The plycrete melted back into the floor, holographic overlay flickering away to leave nothing behind. I checked Mai's closet and found it empty as well. Could she have come back during the day and taken everything? A quick scan of her usage records showed Mai hadn't logged any permanent possessions in months. She didn't own anything. I reloaded her room, stepping in to inspect the facsimiles, a glass display of shells from a trip we'd taken to Enoshima, her grade 7 volleyball trophy, a gallery of chipped and faded toys, the small tortoiseshell crane her grandfather had carved her when she was a baby. I picked up the crane and ran my fingers over the tiny notches my father had made to give the appearance of feathers. Except he hadn't. A soft chime stole through the apartment. At first I thought it was only wishful thinking until my prism flashed green. Mom. Mai's face hung in the air, lips trembling, LEDs dark. I'm sorry for not calling sooner, but I didn't want you to try and stop me. I did it. I dropped out of Todai. I'm leaving. I stumbled over to the prism. What do you mean? What did you do? Mai's image talked over me. I know you'll be disappointed, but it's my life and my choice. Please try to understand. It was a recording. The memory of her empty room stung like a slap. I was still holding the carved crane as I bolted from the apartment. It slipped through my fingers in a fog of light, insubstantial as a dream. Projected billboards crowded Obayashi Station, plastering the air with advertisements for everything from traditional earth cuisine to guided tours of our antique sewer systems. The central platform was crowded with aliens, although that wasn't technically the proper term for them as we were all citizens of the milieu. The space elevator loomed overhead, gel landers crawling up and down its twisted carbon nanotubes like beads of condensation on the sides of a long, thin glass. I stood in the processing line, fingers picking at the hem of my blouse. The origin stamp of Mai's message placed it at the central platform less than an hour ago. The line inched forward. I scanned the crowd for perhaps the hundredth time. Fostern, Uyuni, and members of a dozen other alien species crawled, waddled, and floated amidst the managed chaos of the station. Human passengers, most of them young and naked, moved in small groups, their excited chatter like a sheen of oil in the fast-flowing crowd. Tridvid projections above the terminal showed blurry protesters in New York and Beijing. Teachers with billboards shouted into the camera about the perils of whitewashing and cultural erosion. The scene shifted to a plane of dark red pumice, dotted with structures like the shells of enormous conchs. A flood of crystalline aliens glittered along the building's tight spirals, the light from their bodies staining the sky with streaks of yellow and red. I didn't need my prism to know why they were angry. My muscles hummed with helpless anxiety. Even if Mai were still here, I'd never be able to pick her out of the mass of almost identical youths, I should have gone after her as soon as I let my first ping slide. Maybe I could have stopped her. Maybe I could have... No, there was no way for me to have known what she was planning. Unless I'd thought to ask. Would you do me the favor of presenting your citizen identification colors, please? Although he had a full fiber optic suite, the clerk addressed me in polite Japanese. He looked to be in his early fifties, graying hair lined with plasticized highlights, laugh lines and crow's feet just beginning to bunch the skin around his eyes and mouth. I am not here to travel. It's my daughter. She's going... I chewed my lip. Where was she going? I know she was here within the last hour. Could you do a search by name and CIC? Yes, of course. I gave him the information. The clerk glanced down at his console. I'm sorry. I don't see any privacy waivers here. I can't tell you her destination. But it's right there. He shifted the projection away as I leaned forward. The sapient milieu respects the privacy of its citizens. But she's my daughter. Miss Mizuguchi, your daughter is 18. 
the milieu recognizes her as an adult. I'm sorry, I can't release the information without her permission. You'll be able to ping her via Ansible once her ship reaches its destination. My knuckles whitened on the edge of the partition, the collar of my blouse suddenly too tight. Even the closest worlds were weeks away by slipship. If Mai was going further spinward, it might be months before I could talk to her again. The clerk's expression softened. I can tell you that she left on a walkabout visa, which allows free travel to any planet approved by the Milieu Council on Education. His words blurred into a ringing buzz. Many of my students went on walkabout. The Milieu advertised it as study abroad, but it wasn't. I'd seen the statistics. Most of those who left never came back, at least not to stay. How could Earth compare to the galaxy? The clerk gave a sympathetic smile. Don't be worried. Your daughter went about it the right way. The council only approves Tier 1 worlds, and the visa provides for food and lodging. I see a lot of kids come through here without any plans to... I pushed away from the counter. Walkabout visas weren't easy to get. Mai had the scores to qualify, but she would have also needed a recommendation from a council administrator. I let the flow of the crowd carry me out onto the street, clutching my prism so tightly the edges left red divots on the flesh of my palm. My fingers trembled as I keyed in the contact code and waited, my tight-lipped scowl reflected in the prism's glittering facets. It was minutes before the acknowledgement came. I leaned in close so the translator wouldn't miss a single word. Field. We need to talk. I hadn't known there was any McDonald's left. Few old Earth chain restaurants had survived contact, put out of business by food libraries and matrix printers. Those that remained were small operations, catering mainly to aliens eager to sample the local ambience. Apart from the name, there was little familiar about the restaurant. It was situated on the edge of a pier, half-submerged in the calm waters of Tokyo Bay. A mix of Fostern and other amphibious aliens stretched out on artificial boulders set at the waterline, catered to by humans in wetsuits stamped with golden arches. I waved away the hostess's offer of complimentary hip boots and waded in. The water's chill did little to dampen my anchor as I sloshed over to field. How dare you give my daughter a visa without consulting? My prism hummed. I'm over here, educator, by the plastic clown. I winced and backed away, stammering apologies to the confused foster and I'd mistaken for field. The administrator lay on a lichen-covered rock, several empty bowls of natto spread on the table before it. I paused at the sight. The fermented soybeans acted as a mild intoxicant on Fostern. I hadn't taken field for a drinker. It gestured to a nearby rock. Please, sit. Can I get you anything? Sake, beer, wine? No. Water soaked through the seat of my pants, sending an electric shiver up my spine. I didn't let it distract me. You had no right to approve Mai's visa without telling me. Where were you born, Mizoguchi? Kumamoto. I blinked at the administrator's question. This Kumamoto, was it once independent? Long ago, yes. Field scooped out another dollop of beans, twirling the sticky threads around its tentacle with practiced ease. And when you were young, did you spend all your time studying Kumamoto? Why are you asking me this? Field transferred the natto to its beak and chewed for a moment. There's been a great deal of resistance to the new history courses, even some riots. What do you expect? You're trying to erase our heritage. Not erase, enhance. Individual species are blinded by self-interest, unable to see the greater picture. Although the translator did a poor job with tone, I noticed the administrator's colors were blurred, the foster and equivalent of slurred speech. You studied Japanese history when you were young because you were citizens of Japan, not Kumamoto. It's not the same, isn't it? No, it isn't. The United States occupied Japan for almost a decade in our 20th century. They restructured our government and society, even rewrote our constitution, but that didn't make us Americans. Is that how you view the milieu? As occupiers? I shifted on the rock, saying nothing. 
Field waved one of the waiters over and ordered another bowl of natto. Are you sure I can't get you anything? I shook my head. Silence stretched between us. The waiter came and left. I have three children, Field said at last. One is systems officer on an explorator ship. Another studies the interstellar migratory patterns of the Uyuni flocks. I came to Earth to be near the youngest. Single red dot is fascinated by your pre-contact waste disposal systems. Our sewers? Indeed. I had hopes she would join the diplomatic corps. Field jetted air from his beak in a very good approximation of a sigh. That's my's plan, you know. Walkabout is almost a prerequisite for anyone planning a career in politics. Politics? I was honored when she asked me for a recommendation. She's a true citizen of the galaxy, your daughter. My eyes stung. I wiped a knuckle across my cheek, thankful for the ocean's salty spray. I thought Mai wanted to be a teacher like me. She'd always been so curious, so keen to learn. I'm sorry. Field's tube feet sketched abstract shapes in the condensation on the table. It was selfish of Mai not to inform you. But she's young. I have no such excuse. You should have told me. I gave a sigh of my own, feeling the tightness in my chest uncoil. It wouldn't have changed anything if I'd known. If anything, I probably would have driven her further away. I'm glad you made sure she's taken care of. The milieu cares for all its citizens. Don't push it. Galactic history is in the best interest of all. Fields slumped down on the rock, arms drooping over the side. I frowned out the window. Looking out into the night, I wondered where Maya was headed, and if I'd ever see her again. You can't force understanding. It has to grow on its own. But riots? I don't understand. We've worked so hard, sacrificed so much to keep the milieu together. You only want what's best for us. Yes! The fostering flashed, then went dark. I laid a hand on Field's nearest arm. Its tube feet tickled my palm, then gently adhered to my fingers. What do we do now? Field spoke in muted colors. Trust each other. But there are so many things your people don't know, aren't ready for. How can we be sure? Ask. I looked out across the bay, blinking back tears. There was nothing here for my, nothing but history. You may be surprised what you find out. The water glowed with light, a ghostly Tokyo mirrored in the rippling waves. And there, above the towers and tenements, in a sky clear as a sheet of tempered glass, was a diamond spray of stars. Field, I said without looking back. Yes? I think I'll take that drink now. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Evans. Evan, big thank you. And Andrea, what can I say? Woohoo, what a lovely voice. Thank you so much. So that is it. That's today's show. I hope you um, enjoyed it, should I say. And I hope you will have a look at my new little experiment there, yourremarkableadventure.com. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of... Hold up. What was that? 
boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.